When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we do have some breaking news for you. A jury in New York finding Donald Trump, the Republican presidential frontrunner, by far liable for sexually abusing and defaming writer E. Jean Carroll. The jury also awarding the former magazine columnist nearly $5 million in damages to be paid by Mr. Trump. Carroll walked out of the Manhattan courthouse just moments ago with her lawyer, who said that they are, quote, very happy with the jury's decision. Carol's lawsuit stemmed from an encounter between her and Trump in a New York department store dressing room in 1996, Bergdorf Goodman's, where she claims Donald Trump sexually assaulted her. Donald Trump just reacted on his social media platform, writing in all caps, quote, I have absolutely no idea who this woman is. This verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. Unquote. This all comes as Trump is facing another very serious case in New York City. Just last month, the former president pleaded not guilty to 34 felony charges related to hush money payments to adult film star and director Stormy Daniels, not to mention investigations by the Justice Department into January 6th and to those classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, not to mention the investigation by prosecutors in Fulton County, Georgia, who are looking into his attempt to flip Georgia, perhaps illegally, in the 2020 election. But let's go back to the first verdict. Let's get right to CNN's Kara Scannell outside the courthouse in New York. And Kara, this was pretty quick, and it was also, I think it was more money than she was originally asking for. Yeah, Jake, I mean, this verdict was returned just just over two and a half hours of deliberations. That seemed extremely quick for a jury forum that had a number of questions that they had to answer. And the jury here found that Trump was liable for sexually abusing E. Jean Carroll. That's all related to her, you know, her story that she says Trump raped her in Bergdorf Goodman department store in the mid-1990s. And they also found that Trump defamed her when he made these statements on October 12th saying that he did not know who Carroll was. He said that her story was a hoax and that she she was not his type. Now, over this, you know, the, there were seven days of testimony. The jury heard from 11 witnesses that Carol put on. Trump did not put on a defense, although the jury did see the video deposition of him. And that's something that Carol's team had argued would cut against him. And it seems that the jury did agree with 
that and finding that way. And they also awarded Carol $5 million in damages. Now, as this verdict was read just after 3 p.m. Eastern time today, you know, it was read by the judge's clerk. Carol was sitting there um, next in between two of her attorneys. She was holding the hands of one of her attorneys. And when the question came of, you know, did they prove that uh, Eugene Carroll proved that that Trump had sexually abused her, and the answer was yes. You could see that she looked relieved. She was leaning forward at times. She, you know, exchanged smiles with one of her attorneys. Uh, and then the judge had excused the jury after they ran through the verdict, and he pulled each and every one of them—six men, three women—they all said that this was their unanimous verdict. Uh, you know, then Carroll was still uh, in the courtroom, and t- Trump's attorney Joe Tacopina walked over to her, shook her hand. He also shook the hands of her attorneys. Uh, You know, it was it was a very civil uh, trial between both sides. They were both very respectful of each other, despite what was on the line. And we saw that continue through this final moment. And then, as you mentioned, Carol left. We're waiting for her to have a statement based on this verdict. I mean, it was, you know, she says this rape occurred 27 years ago. The jury agreed with her. And it, it was something she only came public with in 2019. And that lawsuit, that initial lawsuit, is still working its way through the system. She brought the second lawsuit under a new New York law, the Adult Survivors Act, uh, just in November. So, you know, certainly a big moment for her. And, you know, her lawyers had said to the jury that they weren't looking for a specific amount of money, that this was really about Carol getting her name back. Uh, So that, uh, I imagine we will hear a little bit from Carol about that, something she'd been fighting for. Uh, You know, we have not seen Trump's attorney, Joe Tacopina, leave the courthouse just yet. We're waiting to see if he's going to make any statements, if if they will move to appeal in this case. I mean, he previously asked for a mistrial. That is standard. That was uh, denied. But I'm sure we'll see some additional moves from them uh, and some, you know, potential legal decisions that were made and allowed by the judge in this case. They may look to challenge them. But a big win for E. Jean Carroll today, a long time coming for her. Uh, And as you said, just one of several different um, lawsuits and investigations that the former president is facing, Jake. So we should note that the jury had an option uh, to find him liable for rape, and they did not. Uh, They did find him liable uh, for sexual abuse and uh, for defamation. Now, he's on Truth Social uh, doing his all-caps thing. Maybe I, maybe I misunderstood. I thought the judge had told him not to do it. I'm not, that, not that under the Constitution that's the right uh, ruling, but I thought the judge had told him not to do that. Yeah, so Trump had been posting on True Social at the very start of this trial. And, you know, just to back up a moment, the judge made this jury anonymous, anonymous both to him and to the parties. And the reason he did that, he said, was because of some of the statements Trump has made, you know, even leading up to his indictment in the case brought by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, because some of these statements, you know, were viewed as being, you know, calls for violence, calls for protest. So he wanted to protect the jury and, and, and as a result, protect the process here of this trial. So when Trump had made some posts on True Social, it was brought to the judge's attention. He warned Trump's attorney, you know, someone should talk to him because he could possibly be violating some statutes here. You know, he didn't get into details there, but, you know, people were talking that this could be, you know, is he suggesting there's jury tampering, witness tampering, you know, anything of just bringing additional attention to this. And Joe Tacopina, Trump's lawyer said that he did talk to him, and we did see, um, t- you know, uh, true social posts by Trump. Stop. He did make those comments in Ireland, but they weren't br- they weren't really raised as an issue uh, in this trial. And you know, the reason why the judge wanted him to stop is he wants to protect the jury and he wanted to protect the integrity of the trial so they wouldn't end up with a mistrial. And you know, that's where we saw the judge even telling the jury today, you can speak to anyone you want about this. You can identify yourself. He said, I would advise you not to. 
Um, he said if you do decide to talk to someone, don't reveal the names of the other jurors uh, because he wants to protect them. I mean, he, he said, I would advise you not to speak now and not for a very long time. So it's something that he is concerned about given the, um, you know, the issues even in this case. I mean, this, the case here is about uh, e. Jean Carroll making this allegation, Trump's making those statements, and then E. Jean Carroll receiving numerous negative um, tweets, emails. She said she was sleeping with a gun in her bed because she was so concerned about her safety based on the um, reaction of some of Trump's followers. Uh, so that's something that I think was the judge was taking into consideration here. So obviously during uh, the case, um, E. Jean Carroll's attorney introduced that Access Hollywood tape of, of Donald Trump in, I think, 2006, uh, talking with Billy Bush about how if you're a star, you can get away with sexual assault, essentially, grabbing women by their, their genitals. In addition, I believe there, were, there was at least one, if not two other women who testified and claimed that Donald Trump had done similar things to them, right? Because there's this, con- this context that there are more than a dozen women who have made similar allegations about Donald Trump. Who, t- who testified exactly and what did they testify about? Yeah, so there were two women who testified. One of them is Jessica Lead. She said that she was sitting in first class on an airplane next to Donald Trump in 1979 or 1980, and she said that Trump just started groping her then. And um, the other person who testified, Natasha Stoinoff, she was a reporter for People magazine, and she said that she was down at Mar-a-Lago interviewing Trump for a story in 2005 and that he had lured her into a private room and then started kissing her forcibly. She was trying to push him off, and she said he only stopped when a Butler walked into the room. And in both of these women instances, the reason why Carol's attorneys called them is they wanted to show that this was a pattern. Both of these women said that Trump just started kissing them, just started groping them, just started coming on to them, and then only stopped when someone interrupted it or it was a, you know, a semi-public place. And the, another piece of their testimony was that they then went public with their stories, their allegations, right before the 2016 election. Trump was asked about them or himself brought it up on the campaign trail. And in both of those instances, he attacked the women saying essentially that they weren't his type. So Carol's lawyers were using this to say to the jury, this was the pattern. Trump would make these semi-public assaults. If someone went public with it, he would then attack their their, um, you know, their looks and, and their credibility. And they said to the jury, you should look at this pattern. Now, the judge said the jury could consider that when they were evaluating whether Trump assaulted Carol. They could um, consider this as their review if they found that they believe those women by a preponderance of evidence, which the judge said was just over 50 percent. So he said they could consider it. He said if they didn't believe these women, they didn't have to consider it. But it was something that they were allowed to use in this case, and it could be a possible point of appeal for Trump's team. All right, Karis Canal, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Let's bring in CNN chief legal analyst Laura Coates and CNN senior legal analyst uh, Ellie uh, Honig. Laura, former President Trump uh, chose not to testify in this case. But uh, as Kara Scannell uh, noted, uh, one of the things he had said about E. Jean Carroll, uh, and obviously this is offensive for anybody who knows that sexual assault and rape is not about attraction. It's about power and bullying and abuse. But he said, she's not my type. How impactful do you think it was in the tape record or the video recorded uh, d- a deposition that was shown to the jury in which Donald Trump, who claimed E. Jean Carroll was not his type, um, was, uh, was confused when shown a picture of E. Jean Carroll because he thought it was actually uh, his second wife, Marla Maples. Let me show uh, that video clip and then get your reaction as to how uh, impactful you think that moment uh, might have been. 
I don't even know who the woman. Let's see. I don't know who. It's Marla. You say Marla's in this photo? That's Marla, yeah. That's, that's my wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. That's Here. Carol. Oh, is that? The oh, person okay. you just pointed to was oh, Eugene Carroll. Who is that? Who is this? Point, and the person, the woman on the right is your then wife, I don't Ivana? know. This was the picture. Ivana. I assume that's John Johnson. Is that that's Carol? Because it's very blurry. In, in addition, the jury was able to see that the photograph was not blurry at all. Um, how, how impactful do you think that was, Laura? Well, first, it does absolutely bear repeating what you just said, that the idea here, are they suggesting in the defense of some kind that had he been attracted to her or had she, quote unquote, been his type, he would have been more inclined to actually do what he was alleged to have done. That's really just kind of a, a fatal actual defense to make. And the second part of it is, as you note, it's about power. It's not about the laws of attraction. Why this is so impactful and why it was ultimately so impactful is because he did not testify. It's his right to do so. It's his right not to also appear at the actual civil trial under the civil law. But it then gives an outsized and perhaps oversized emphasis on the deposition testimony. And that's what the jury has to go by. They have the presentation of the plaintiff's case and nothing more. So there's no ability to actually counter that in a point. But also, ultimately, the idea that he has said that he does not know who she is, a claim that he has repeated, essentially, in his most recent Truth Social, even after being found to defame and also sexually abuse her, just goes to show that there is a disconnect between what I believe he may have understood this trial to be about and what he was accused of having done and what he's required to do from here out. Ellie, um, obviously, uh, this is a horrible day for Donald Trump. Um, I I guess one of the questions I have is, if you had been his attorney, um, would you have told him, please go on the stand, please testify, and please express, uh, if not contrition, uh, please say, I would never do such a thing. That's such a, I mean, wouldn't that be what somebody would tell a client to do? That would be exactly what I would tell Donald Trump before his deposition, Jake, ideally, because I think that's absolutely the best defense here. You just deny this. You can deny this respectfully. You poke holes in E. Jean Carroll's testimony and you let it rest with the jury. Instead, at that deposition, Donald Trump absolutely did himself in. That deposition was a complete and utter train wreck. He completely undermined any defense he could have. If anything, he probably implicated himself in all of this. So once you've got that deposition on the record, you're in a really tough spot because then option A is call your client as a witness, hope he does better. But remember, he can still get cross-examined with that deposition or option B is just let the deposition stand and hope you don't make it any worse by leaving him off the stand. It's sort of a no win once you give that horrific deposition. Laura, uh, help us understand us non-lawyers out here Uh, Help us understand why uh, the jury did not find Donald Trump liable for rape, uh, but did find him liable for sexual uh, assault or sexual abuse. What what is the difference? Does it suggest that they believed some of what Ian Jean Carroll said, but not all of it? I I don't know. So forgive my ignorance. What, What does that mean? No one would ever mistake you for ignorant, Jake Tapper. But let me tell you this. When you're thinking about how jurors are going to view the instructions, the verdict form, 
what the elements are to prove a particular case. And it's important to note, although this is a lower burden of proof, proof preponderance of evidence versus reasonable doubt, they had to still meet all of the elementary requirements in order to get this conviction or this actual liability finding um, of Donald Trump. And so the difference is normally the amount of force that may have been used, threats or intimidation. Usually it has to do with the idea of what happened in the actual act. Penetration can occur in both areas. Um, the idea of sexual gratification, also part of it. But normally it's a variance in terms of the amount of physical force that could be used. But it could also just be that the jury is really reminiscent of what we have dealt with as a nation and as a society, looking at this in the past, present, and future, Jake. In the past, the idea of a delayed report of sexual assault would have been something that had been easily dismissed. The person would have been discredited. The person would have get, gotten no sense of access to a court of law. They would have been found to be somebody who you should not believe by virtue of the passage of time. Now in the present, following the Me Too movement in particular, we have a greater level of credibility that's afforded because we recognize the different reasons why somebody might not want to come forward immediately. But in the future, you're going to be looking at the appeal process here. The idea, and you've mentioned it, Ellie, as well, the idea that you have other witnesses who came forward, not about the specific allegations in this case, but about the modus operandi. This is what this person is doing. They've done over time. That's going to be the source of appeal, not so much the things between the rape or sexual abuse. Um, I don't know. Uh, the control room will tell me if we have the clip of Donald Trump talking about the Access Hollywood uh, videotape uh, uh, in which... Um, he was asked about it, but just to remind our viewers, in 2006, uh, and then it came out right before the presidential election in 2016, Donald Trump on tape joking it up with Billy Bush about how if you're a star, women let you essentially commit sexual assault. Um, now, Trump's team, uh, both on the campaign and then subsequently uh, at the White House, would say that was just locker room talk. It was just, it was just words. It wasn't deeds. But when Trump was asked about that tape and those claims... In this trial, Ellie Honig, he, he, he basically doubled down. He agreed with it. He said, yeah, it's a, this is how it is. If you're a star, it's been, going, it's been like this for a million years, and you get away with it. And then he said, unfortunately, or fortunately, or fortunately, do you think that that might have played a role in the jury's verdict? Because he's, he's obviously saying sometime, I mean, just to parse what he said, Sometimes it's a good thing that a star can get away with sexual assault. I mean, that's what fortunately means in that context. Yeah, exactly, Jake. That was a disastrous answer for Donald Trump, really, on two levels. First of all, as you say, when you say that it's fortunate that stars can do this, and later he was asked, do you consider yourself a star? He said yes. Uh, that really goes to the heart of E. Jean Carroll's allegation. And second of all, when Trump said, well, it's true, that was his answer, that is not the point here. The point is, does Donald Trump believe that that's the way of the world? And he clearly does believe that's the way of the world. He said it at the deposition. And hence, the argument is, that's how he operates. And Gene Carroll's uh, lawyers eff effectively argued to the jury. And that's what he did to Gene Carroll. So that answer right there, I think, did a lot of damage to Donald Trump and, and was a big contributing factor to today's verdict. So, uh, Laura, Donald Trump uh, ordered by this court to pay $5 million to E. Jean Carroll, $3 million for defamation, $2 million uh, for sexual abuse. Uh, I assume you think he will appeal uh, this verdict. Um, would a, a, an appeal have chance, a chance of success? 
He absolutely will appeal, and I would expect him to do so, as I would any other litigant, even if this amount might be not as consequential to, say, Donald Trump as it would be for the average person. It's still a finding that you have committed a sexual act against somebody in a non-consensual way and defamation. These are very, very consequential and important allegations against him that now a jury is found to be true. But remember how you're breaking down that figure partially compensatory, which essentially says, look, this person had a lowering of their reputation. I want to compensate for that loss, the punitive aspect of it, to punish the person for what they have done. But again, go back to the fact that there were other witnesses who were allowed to testify about actions that they say that he engaged in that were not either charged criminally or that were actually the topic of this particular lawsuit, known as kind of prior bad acts if this were the criminal matter. That is usually ripe fodder for appeal to say, look, a jury never should have heard those things. You want to be judged based on the context of the specific crime and prior bad acts that are allowed to come in, most appellants will have an issue with that because they believe that it essentially makes them likely to be found more liable or more guilty in the criminal context. So that's where I would look for. Also, of course, um, the former president commented on what he perceived this judge as having been um, harder on him, perhaps biased, if there is some room to actually make that argument. But at the end of the day, the appeal won't have as much credibility because he did not put on a case. And so right. a jury is going to look at this and say, and it did look at this and say, based on what we're seeing, that's what we're finding. So even an appeal that says no reasonable jury would have ever found this, well, what are you going to do if I only heard one side and your deposition? Yeah. Larko, Telly Honig, stick with us. We're going to keep uh, covering the story. We have more on the breaking news. I had a jury in a civil case finding that Donald Trump, the Republican presidential frontrunner, uh, sexually abused E. Jean Carroll. Uh, the political impact as the former president makes another run for the White House. have more on the breaking news. A New York jury this afternoon finding Donald Trump, the Republican presidential frontrunner, liable for sexual abuse and for defamation. The jury ordering Donald Trump to pay nearly $5 million to writer E. Jean Carroll, who accuses him of raping her in a department store in the mid-90s. This decision coming after a different legal consequence for Donald Trump. He was indicted by a Manhattan grand jury on 34 criminal counts of falsifying business records in March related to uh, that hush money payment uh, paid to Stormy Daniels. Laurie, Laura Coates is back with me along with CNN political commentator Essie Cup, who joins our discussion because Essie, obviously the political implications of this beyond the legal ones are quite consequential. Uh, Donald Trump is by far in every poll the front runner for the Republican presidential nomination. And he has now, now been found liable for sexual abuse in a case in which he really didn't actually provide any defense of himself at all. Um, is this going to have any impact on Republican voters? Right. So you have to remember, I know you do, Jake, um, that Republican voters elected a man in 2016 who we knew to um, have, have sexually assaulted women. He admitted it, right? He admitted he 
grabbed women by the genitalia because as a famous person he could. That did not bother them, nor did a slew of other odious um, elements of his campaign and his personal background. Uh, I have to imagine some of this is baked in for Republican voters. However, there might be some more practical-minded donors and political operatives who might pull back given this verdict and some other, you know, pending legal cases might want to shift their attention to candidates who have not been found liable of sexual abuse. This is a big, this is a big deal, but voters have to ask themselves, listen, in 2016, we elected this guy. Are we going to elect a guy in 2024 now who's been found liable liable by an actual jury of sexual abuse? That's pretty hard to ignore. Laura, um, through the years, Donald Trump has, without question, been able to politically withstand uh, many scandals, and he's still racking them up, uh, that probably would have felled anyone else. I mean, people making a bigger deal out of Ron DeSantis, uh, you know, having, you know, writing the word likable on top of a piece of paper during debate prep than, than Donald Trump being found liable uh, for sexual abuse. Um, but you know, based on your observations, do you think it's likely he will be able to, you know, work through it, tweet through it, truth social through it, uh, and this might not have any impact on the Republican base voters uh, that can deliver him the nomination? Well, ironically, a lot of what they are using as talking points right now to try to counter the allegations, the lawsuits, the indictments against Trump are rooted in some of the same arguments that they disparaged and really criticized when talking about criminal justice reform. The idea of there being more than one justice system, some for them, some for the others. The idea that people are not being treated fairly, that they are targeted, that they are selectively prosecuted. All of these things he has wrapped up into a conflation about himself but it's really unique only to him and not really viewed in other aspects of things. And so it'll be curious from my perspective as somebody who is intimately involved in the Justice Department and system to see how the talking points will reflect in an overall disdain for the thought that some people are prosecuted and others are not. But ultimately, based on what he has already said, We already had a lot of what was used as evidence against him in the courtroom, the Access Hollywood tape, et cetera, already have been in in the public square, so to speak. But there is one aspect of it that really, I think, will be very telling. It's a block away in Manhattan that there was also an indictment. It's down south in Georgia. It's also down even south and further in Florida from Mar-a-Lago. And sometimes it's the culmination on those old justice scales that actually can weigh in favor of people saying it's enough. Maybe there's somebody who ought to head the executive branch of government that's a different person. But be it far from me to anticipate what every voter will do any more than what every juror will do. So, S.E., um, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who is going to run for president against Donald Trump, uh, he has not had much traction in the polls as of yet, he just released this statement about the verdict, quote, I have seen firsthand how a cavalier and arrogant contempt for the rule of law can backfire. The jury verdict should be treated with seriousness and is another example of the indefensible behavior of Donald Trump, unquote. Uh, that is one comment from one Republican running against Donald Trump. Uh, yeah. We have yet to hear from Ambassador Nikki Haley. We have yet to hear uh, from Ron DeSantis, who is not officially a candidate, of course, uh, and on and on. What do you think somebody who wants to be the Republican presidential nominee should say today? 
listen, it shouldn't take a lot of courage to come out pretty strongly and say we should not elect a guy who's been now found liable of sexual abuse to be president again. Uh, But I think it will take some courage, and I'm not sure how often we'll hear this. But I do want to just point out very quickly, tomorrow's town hall at CNN has been criticized for platforming a man with such um, a, a gross background and who's done so much damage to the country. But it's important because it's an opportunity to ask him about this, not in a deposition, not when he can sort of avoid answering, but but when he's going to be on camera on a big platform, on a big stage to ask him, maybe for the first time at a town hall, asking a former president about being found liable by a jury of sexual abuse. That is historic and an opportunity for us to really probe into that. Laura Coates, Essie Cup, thanks to both of you. Coming up next, the White House reporter who interviewed Trump and wrote the story that led to this sexual abuse and defamation case. I'm going to speak with him. Stay with me. And we're back with the breaking news. A New York jury this afternoon finding former President Donald Trump liable for sexual abuse and for defamation and ordering him to pay nearly $5 million to writer E. Jean Carroll, who accuses Trump of raping her in Bergdorf Goodman's department store in the mid-90s. Here to discuss is the White House correspondent for Bloomberg News, Jordan Fabian. Uh, Jordan co-wrote the original story where Donald Trump denied having assaulted E. Jean Carroll and said, quote, she's not my type. Of course, as we all know, sexual assault has nothing to do with attraction or type. It's about bullying and abuse. Either way, uh, Jordan Fabian wrote that in 2019 when he was uh, with The Hill. So, so Jordan... Uh, Fabian, uh, you had a role here uh, in this event, this major historical event. Um, What do you make uh, of what happened? Well, Jake, it was stunning to hear Donald Trump use that kind of language in the Oval Office at the time, even though he had this history of making crude statements, just given the fact that this was a live allegation. And you sort of knew at the time this could lead to legal peril. And so when he said it, you know, as a reporter, your your spidey sense sort of jumps up and pops out. And, and that's the reaction I had at the time. Like, oh, my God, uh, I can't believe you just said that. And and this could spell real trouble for him. Uh, we I remember rushing to meet the deadline to run the story. And Gene Carroll was on CNN soon afterward to respond. And, and then here we are. Um, and, and then obviously uh, he, he subsequently repeated it as well. I mean, it wasn't just something he said as president where you could. I guess, technically argue uh, perhaps it was protected speech because of his special role as president of the United States. But then after his presidency, uh, he, he went on uh, and, and repeated it uh, again. It is remarkable. Um, somebody with so many accusers uh, is so uh, freewheeling in his uh, insults and attacks. Um, did you ever think that your story would be at the center of this uh, momentous civil trial against Donald Trump? Well, it was hard to envision that, that at the time, but you did sort of have an inkling that it was going to get him into some sort of trouble. Like Gene Carroll, I think just a couple of days before, had made the allegations. And so, uh, you know, I know for a fact from my reporting at the time, the White House staff definitely did not want Donald Trump to talk about the Gene Carroll case in his capacity as president. They didn't want reporters asking him about it. So uh, they had a sense that there could be some legal sensitivities, perhaps, if not political sensitivities for him talking about it. And yet, you know, as we saw, Jake, during the Trump administration, there was always a gulf between what his staff wanted and what Donald Trump 
wanted to talk, to talk about, and he decided to go there in that interview. Were you surprised uh, by the comments he made uh, in his video deposition that were aired before the jury, even though he refused to testify before the jury? He did, he did offer this video deposition, and in them, he basically affirmed his belief uh, that if you're a star, you can get away with sexual assault, and he said, unfortunately or fortunately. Uh, and then, uh, having said that E. Jean Carroll was not his type, he uh, went on to confuse a picture of E. Jean Carroll with a picture of his second wife, uh, Marla Maples. I mean, I, 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 I don't want to be, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a legal analyst, uh, but that is some of the worst testimony I've ever seen in my life. Politically incorrect, she's not my type. And that's 100 Yeah, the thought also occurred to me, Jake, the same thing, that uh, even for Donald Trump, it was stunning to hear him talk about that under oath in a deposition when ostensibly his goal is to try to get himself off the hook he made comments that I would assume a reasonable juror would think, uh, yeah, this guy uh, may have definitely done this. And, and, and that's appears how the jury decided. So yes, even for Donald Trump, it, it was some wild stuff. And, you know, he, he again, he repeated the, she's not my type comment. She he repeated the, the Hollywood uh, access, Hollywood tapes uh, tropes. And, and, uh, and the, the result perhaps isn't surprising in that light. All right, Jordan, thanks so much. I got to interrupt because we're going to bring in uh, Trump's attorney, uh, Joe uh, uh, Tacopino, uh, is uh, talking right now. Let's listen in. Please calm down. Don't need anyone to get run over. We're good. Um, Yeah, I mean, strange verdict. Um, This was a rape claim. It was a rape case all along, and the jury rejected that, but made all the findings. So um, we'll obviously be appealing those other findings, but they rejected her rape claim, and she'd always claimed this was a rape case. Um, so it's a little perplexing, but, um, you know, we move forward. Did you speak to Mr. Trump, and what did he tell you? We've spoken, um, and we're ready to, you know, proceed, go forward. Obviously, you know, he's firm in his belief, as many people are, that he cannot get a fair trial in New York City um, based on the jury pool. And um, I think one could argue that that's probably a, an accurate assessment um, based on what happened today. Um and, uh, you know, again, it's something that, you know, we're very confident on the appellate issues here. Um, the Access Hollywood tape should not have come into this case. Some other things shouldn't come into the case. I mean, we made many <clears throat> motions that we thought would, would create um, issues for appeal, and, and we're going to em- employ them now. Um, you know, there were things that happened in this case that were beyond the pale. I mean, we made a mistrial motion to do the trial because of some of the rulings and and we believe a bias that was displayed by the court. Um, this judge has been overturned already once by the Second Circuit in Carroll versus Trump, and we think he's going to be overturned a second time. Um, but in the meantime, we, uh, you know, we march forward. He was found not liable for the rape, and that's it. You know, the fact that Reed Hoffman, the Democratic financier, financed this case, and that was not something when Donald Trump was accused of making statements that this was a politically motivated um, claim, and the judge wouldn't let us go into that. And, you know, it's... Uh, it's, there are plenty of issues, Adam, for us you, to you pursue. You complimented by not only the judge, but opposing counsel. Um, how do you feel about that? I appreciate that. I mean, look, I have respect for, for the opposing counsel in this case. Roberta Kaplan's a great lawyer. Her team's great. And I appreciate that they complimented me. But, you know, for me, it's just about the results. And at the end of the day, while, you know, it was strange, uh, part of me was obviously very happy that Donald Trump was not branded a rapist. Um, I didn't think there should be any liability findings, so we'll pursue it. We'll pursue it, Adam. 
That, that's what I just said about the appeal, right? We're going to be appealing it. But she claimed all along that she had been raped by Donald Trump. That's what this case is all about. Can you talk about Trump's not to attend his trial and not to testify? Yeah, this is a circus atmosphere. Um, and having him be here would be more of a circus. And again, what I said in the summation yesterday, you know, reigns true. Um, holds true. It's that, you know, what more could he say other than I didn't do it? And he said that on the road here. He, you know, it's hard to prove a negative. Molly, I could say you stole my pen. Prove you didn't do it. How would you prove it? To say you didn't do it, right? I mean, it's sort of where we're at. So, you know, it's 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 very simplistic to say, oh, he should have testified. He had nothing to say other than what he's already said on the road. So we talked a little bit about how perplexing the verdict was. I'm well, thank you. How are you? Good to see you, man. Good seeing you. you uh, how does that play in the appeal? The fact that she called yeah. a rape case all along. And yeah, I think it's a, an inconsistent verdict, right? And um, it's something that obviously will be another issue for appeal. But Jim, the issue for the appeals were laid really months ago when, when things like you know Donald Trump's attempt to have the, the dress tested for DNA after they sent it into a lab and didn't come up with semen, I think that's something that was important. Um, the fact that the Reed Hoffman, the Democratic financier, you know, who Ms. Carroll was not candid about when she testified initially under oath in her deposition, um, you know, that should come into this case. The Access Hollywood tape should not have come into this case. There's a federal rule called 403 that balances out inflammatory and prejudicial things, and that certainly was one of them. So, but there's plenty of issues to appeal. And uh, look, that's what happens, right? You know, we are, we're in one sense gratified, and I know some people in this camp are very happy um, that, you know, the rape claim was rejected, but, you know, I'm not, and uh, I am happy about that, certainly, but I'm not happy that he was found liable for anything whatsoever, because on this evidence, I didn't think he should have been. How did well, Mr. Trump take it? Career, uh, he, you know, he's strong. He's, uh, he's ready to, to move forward. Um, he wants to fight this on appeal. Um, again, he was successful in one appeal before um, the Second Circuit with Judge Kaplan on Carol versus Trump, and he thinks he's going to be successful on the second one. But he's planning, you know, he's got a town hall tomorrow night, and he's just moving forward, as he always does. Is this going to be Nope. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. This is the career for President Donald Trump, this case? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, he seems to be a survivor and move forward, and, and will continue to move forward. Um, again, this case will be up on appeal, and we'll see what happens. But um, no, I didn't actually. Um, you know, look, there have been mafia cases where there are anonymous jurors, but at least the lawyers get to know who the jurors are. Here, we didn't even know who they were, and that's in a case where there's you know a very strong, um, a very strong reaction people would have to politicians, particularly Donald Trump, one way or another, we should have been able to tell something about the background of these people. And, and unfortunately, having uh, an anonymous jury even kept from the lawyers, um, I don't think was fair or was right. It sort of prevents a, a thorough jury selection, and, and we couldn't challenge people who we didn't know, you know, what their backgrounds were. So we look at faces, basically. Can you seek a stay of the final judgment pending appeal? Uh, we will. What did you say to Evie? When you shook her hand. Oh, no, I, listen, this is I, what I said to her is between Miss Carol and I, but, you know, um, I don't make it personal with people. And um, we had a we had a pretty good experience as far as the parties in this case, considering, um, you know, what we went through. This was not an easy case. What do you think about how fast they came out? Um, yeah, it was fast. I mean, I you know, again, it's hard to see behind a jury room door. And I don't know what they were thinking or what it sort of indicates is what, again, what people have been saying is that in New York, you just can't get a fair trial. 
And, you know, people have said you lost the case when they announced the names of the litigants. Um, but again, they, they found him not liable for, for the rape. You know? What do you make of the fact that they decided? What do you make of the fact that they so quickly decided on sexual abuse, but didn't go as far as saying? Yeah, it's that what I said earlier, which is a bit inconsistent, right? It's a bit inconsistent because all along she claimed this was a rape. Not that she wasn't certain if it was a rape, it was a rape. And she said that, and they were jury rejected it. So it's hard to sort of square that with the rest of the verdict. But it's a good question. I just don't. Yeah, I'm a little perplexed, guys, honestly, in that regard. Okay, I'm going to go now. I have a, a fan that wants to talk to me over there, so I'm going to go address him. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. All right, uh, that's Donald Trump's attorney, Joe Takapina, uh, speaking outside of the Manhattan courthouse where uh, there were a lot of reporters and at least one um, individual decidedly not a fan of Mr. Joe Takapina. This is after the jury found former President Donald Trump, his client, liable uh, for battery and for defamation and ordered him, Trump, to pay nearly $5 million to writer uh, e. Jean uh, Carroll. Let's bring back CNN's chief legal analyst, uh, Laura Coates. A uh, lot, uh, lot was said there by Mr. Takapina. Uh, and he, he expressed a, he, he agreed that it was a fast jury verdict. Uh, he was surprised, to, it, it seemed, to, that it was that fast. He, say, he, he definitely indicated that there's going to be uh, an appeal uh, among the, the various grounds, uh, well, let's, let's just do them one by one because I'm really interested in your insights, Laura. Uh, first of all, he said Donald Trump can't get a fair trial in New York City uh, because uh, of, the, of the jury pool. Um, New York City is uh, where this uh, incident allegedly happened in Bergdorf Goodman's. Um, I, I, uh, is that grounds for a successful appeal to, to say, look, New York, uh, man, you know, Manhattan specifically, Voted. I don't even know what it was, but you know, let's say more than ninety percent of the vote, people in that in that uh, borough uh, voted against Donald Trump uh, in the last two elections. He can't have a fair trial. I, is that reasonable? No. I mean, the assumption that by virtue of one's politics that you are unable to follow the jury instructions is something that has been unsuccessful for many a litigant across this country. But more broadly, there was a voir dire process. They didn't just pull names out of a hat and say, here you go, you will now sit. They had to whittle it down to the nine, I believe it's actually 12 who sat because they had to have alternates who might have been available in case of any issue coming rise, to suggest that there was somehow no ability to do a full background check on the average juror is a little absurd to me, given that normally in even a criminal context where you're fighting for your life outside of bars, that you would be able to know whether the jurors could follow the instructions, whether they could be objective and unbiased. That's where the criteria, not so much whether you've had a chance to do a full background check on one's voting habits and beyond. But it's notable, of course, that Donald Trump has routinely said that by virtue of his name, his position, his lack of fans, that he will not have a fair jury pool in New York. But that is really a far cry from what is required to prove on appeal. Um, he also brought up the idea that the Access Hollywood tape uh, should not have been uh, admitted. Um, again, I'm no legal expert. It certainly is uh, defamatory. <laughs> it certainly suggests that Donald Trump mm -hmm. thinks uh, that he can get away with the kind of behavior E. Jean Carroll accused him uh, of, of doing. Um, does he have a point that that tape should not have been uh, admitted? My understanding, uh, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, was that the way he brought it in was he was talking to a woman who also alleged that Donald Trump had sexually assaulted her in a similar way, 
and she mentioned the Access Hollywood tape and thus provided an entree for him to introduce it as evidence. Well, the way you bring in anything that's sort of is, is hearsay, right? I mean, it's an out-of-court statement made to prove what you're trying to prove is true in the courtroom. Essentially, is you have to show that it's more probative than it is prejudice. Meaning, is it going to help illuminate an issue for the jury in a way that's not going to unduly prejudice the person who is accused? In this case, because it was about this other prior bad act, that related to a direct claim that was being made by somebody on a witness stand, the relevance likely outweighed the actual any prejudicial value. Also, of course, the judge noted, I'm sure, they're thinking of this has already been out in the public. It's not as if the Access Hollywood tape was somehow covered in cobwebs, buried under a rock, and no one knew about it for years on end. It was very much part of a major presidential election. So the idea of admitting it for this particular case, the judge probably looked at it. Although it's in the court of public opinion does not mean it always comes into the court of law, but here you're weighing that probative value against the need for the testimony. And once you decide the other person who witnessed or is a, a claimant in some way is able to testify, other things can come in. Uh, Mr. Takapina also brought up uh, several times in just a short uh, address there uh, that this was a rape trial. He'd been accused of rape, but the jury did not find Trump liable for rape. They found him liable for sexual uh, abuse, uh, not to be too graphic, but um, I guess what she's accused of, she accuses him of, uh, is, is um, digitally uh, penetrating her um, with, uh, without her consent. Um, so I don't know if technically the, the, the details here, but is it relevant that he wasn't found guilty or, or liable for rape? I'm sure it's relevant in his ability to say in front of the reporters just now that Donald Trump was not found to be a quote unquote rapist. But I found a couple things odd about that statement. Number one, he said it's difficult to prove a negative. And if you compared this case to say I stole your pen, how would I prove that? Just so we're all clear in this country and beyond, a sexual assault, very distinct from stealing one's pen. But the law in New York, of course, means two different things. There's sexual contact, which is under sexual abuse, meaning your person has had contact with somebody's genitalia or um, other private areas and often includes the anus as well, and that it was without consent. Now, rape and sexual assault in a different context often means penetration without one's consent, normally by force or some kind of implied threat or beyond. So a finding of sexual content contact is still a non-consensual offensive touching. That's where you have the battery part come in, a non-consensual a non offensive touching of one's intimate genitalia. I don't know if you want to split hair, so to speak, on these two issues. They both are particularly problematic. But when she accuses him of um, of rape, and and uh, again, I don't I don't know the details about how this works in civil court. Um, is digital rape considered rape in New York law? It's considered contact, sexual contact. It could be by penetration. In fact, if you look at the actual statute, I looked up to make sure that we were all on the same page. Part of sexual intercourse, as it's defined under New York law, includes meaning any penetration, however slight, of the penis into the vaginal opening. So if this is a digital penetration, meaning one's fingers or one's hands in some form or fashion, then it could be viewed as distinct and ought to be under the actual reading of the law. But remember, this case, and we were very quick and cloak and close and, and clear to say this on CNN because the most important thing to remember, 
It is a battery and yeah. defamation suit. Battery and battery defined as the offensive touching. So under that umbrella can include what's why the jury had all those different categories to look at how one defines offensive touching to include sexual contact, penetration, digitally or penile. I guess the verdict didn't really leave him, Mr. Takapina, much to say beyond that. Uh, and uh, now we find out it's even less than we thought. Laura Coates, thanks so much. Uh, coming up next, we're going to go live outside the New York courthouse. Donald Trump's attorneys say uh, that he plans to appeal uh, the verdict after that jury found him liable for sexual abuse and defamation. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. In this hour, we're going to start in New York City with a massive jury verdict. The Manhattan jury finding Donald Trump, the Republican frontrunner for president of the United States, liable for battery and defamation and ordered him to pay nearly $5 million to writer E. Jean Carroll, who was seen leaving court with her lawyer after the decision came down. Carroll accuses Trump of raping her in a department store in the mid-1990s. Trump's lawyer says he is already planning an appeal. And Trump reacted on his social media website, Truth Social, saying, quote, I have absolutely no idea who this woman is. This verdict is a disgrace, a continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time, unquote. We're going to start our coverage with CNN's Paula Reed and Jean Casares. Uh, Paula, walk us through the verdict. Jake, it's really surprising that this jury was able to go through this three-page verdict form in just two hours, answering these questions and finding that former President Trump sexually abused E. Jean Carroll and that he was liable for battery, awarding her $2 million in damages. Now, they also found that he defamed her when he called her accusations a hoax and a lie. And in terms of the defamation damages, they awarded her just under $3 million. Now, they did not find that he raped her, but sexual abuse is a form of sexual assault. So, Jake, this is a victory for E. Jean Carroll, who sued the former president for battery and defamation based on these allegations that he raped her in a department store around 1996. Now, it is apparent that the former president is likely to appeal. But again, at this point, this is certainly a victory for E. Jean Carroll. Yeah, and Jean Casares, obviously, the, uh, President Trump's a, a lawyer trying to you know, make a big deal out of the fact that the, the jury did not find him liable for, for rape. But it, this is a big verdict for Eugene Carroll, uh, without question. Five million dollars. Uh, Donald Trump found liable for both defamation uh, and battery. It is very interesting, uh, that aspect, though, because it's definitely a victory for the plaintiffs. No question about it for Eugene Carroll. She got justice today in that courtroom. But this was a trial where she testified for hours and she testified with great detail of how he raped her. She went through every single bit of how she did it. And then she went immediately to her friends. She told them exactly what happened. Both of those friends who testified told her in 1997, he raped you. And the jury did not believe more likely than not, because that's your standard legally, that he did rape her. They went to what is the second in line, which would be sexual abuse. I think it would be so fascinating to talk with the jurors because did some believe that he did rape her? Others believe that he did not rape her, that it was sexual abuse, and it was a compromise in a sense. Remember those prior bad act witnesses that were so strong, that testified, that give such strength to the plaintiff's case. They both allege sexual abuse. And this pattern, that would be the pattern. If you follow the pattern, then this would have been sexual abuse. But I think it is striking and something that should not be ignored that in this rape case, they didn't find rape. 
Paula, how do you think uh, Trump's taped deposition uh, played into this decision? In, in the in the deposition, he he said a lot of things that I, I bet uh, influenced the jury to to rule against him. Absolutely. That deposition certainly did not help his defense as part of Eugene Carroll's case. Not only did she have to bolster her claim of what happened in that department store without any DNA evidence, without any eyewitnesses, she also had to establish that this was a pattern because that's how she was going to prove her case. So, look, it's not just me saying this. Other people, other witnesses, as we heard, allege a similar pattern of conduct. But they also use the infamous Access Hollywood tape where the former president talks about grabbing women and then in the deposition where that came up, he doubled down, which was pretty shocking. And again, supports what Gene was just talking about, this pattern, establishing that this was all part of a pattern of conduct by the former president. Now, there was another big moment in that deposition where, despite having said that Eugene was not his type, he confused her with one of his ex-wives, Marla Maples. Let's take a listen to what he said. I don't even know who the woman, let's say, I don't know who, it's Marla. You're saying Marla's in this photo? That's Marla, yeah. That's that's my wife. Which woman are you pointing to? No. Here. Carol. Oh, is that? The person oh, okay. you just pointed to was oh, Eugene Carroll. Who is that? Who is this? Point, and the person, the woman on the right is your then wife, I don't Ivana? know. This was the picture. Ivana. I assume that's John Johnson. Is that that's Carol? Because it's very blurry. Now, of course, the former president did not take the stand here in this case. He didn't put on any defense, but certainly uh, that defamation, that deposition was not helpful for his case at all and really likely gave a boost to E. Jean Carroll that we haven't heard from any of the jurors to explain exactly how it factored in. And it's unclear if we will, because even at the end of today, the, the judge advised them to remain anonymous for a long time. All right, Paula Reed and Jean Casares, thanks so much. Let's bring in Natasha Stoinoff. Uh, Ms. Stoinoff testified in E. Jean Carroll's case against Donald Trump. She had previously accused Trump of assaulting her at Mar-a-Lago while serving as a journalist for People uh, magazine. Um, Natasha, if it's okay for me to call you that, uh, thanks for joining us. Um, What's your reaction to the verdict? I'm elated and very emotional about this. It's been an emotional week, I have to tell you. And I, I didn't expect the jury to have a response so fast. I didn't know what that was going to mean. And um, when I heard the news, I got to tell you, I was um, jumping up and down. Well, I, I imagine a part of it was because you you told your story to them and, and they believed you. I mean, that must have been some of what you went through. Very much so. Um, for all for many of us who came forward in 2016, it's been a long road um, and we've dealt with a lot of people not believing our stories. So to to give the story under oath and have a jury believe it is um, a very heart, you know, heartwarming, um, vindicating feeling. Um, just a, a feeling of hope that when you tell the truth, you can be believed. Obviously, uh, you're one of more than a dozen women who have made such allegations uh, against the, the former uh, president, um, what what led you to into that courtroom? I, I'm not sure if you're comfortable talking about it, but but how did you come to be one of the women uh, testifying uh, that day? Um, well, her 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 team asked me if I would, and um, I think the belief was that um, I helped show a pattern, and um, that it would be helpful for the jury to hear that. And um, 
when they asked me, I just thought it's something that I had to do. Was it difficult? It, it was difficult leading up to it. And amazingly, once I got into the stand, I, um, I just felt like it was me and the jury and that I was telling them what happened. I, everything else around me just sort of disappeared. And it was like this strange sort of Zen moment of truth where I was finally telling it uh, in an area that was very, in a medium that was very serious and important and uh, nothing else mattered. So the difficulty sort of disappeared once I got on the stand. This is, this is kind of a difficult question, but um, do you think it's that people don't believe you? Or do you think that the people who vote for Donald Trump anyway just don't care? I think it's a combination of both. I think that they hear all sorts of negative uh, news about the women that were that were liars. So on the the first step is that they don't believe, and then I think that there's a certain group that think it probably happened and don't care. And that really is actually the most heartbreaking to me. And as somebody who was uh, assaulted uh, by Donald Trump, um, per your testimony under oath, um, what is it like to see him? leading in the polls, not just for the Republican presidential nomination, but most recently in an ABC News Washington Post poll, uh, leading against Joe Biden for the presidency, removing politics from it, just talking about what you experienced and what so many other women have uh, testified under oath uh, and in public uh, about their experiences with him assaulting them. Um, Well, first, I'm never quite sure anymore what to believe when we hear about polls. So I don't take it too seriously. And then I just sort of hold on to hope that the American people have learned a lot over the last four to six years and will make a wiser choice uh, in 2024 than they did in 2016. I just I have hope for the American people. Natasha Stoinoff, it's a brave thing to come forward uh, to tell a story uh, about uh, an assault, and it's a brave thing to do so before a jury, and it's a brave thing to do so right now. So I I thank you, and I thank you for what you're doing, um, not just for justice in E. Jean Carroll's case, or your case, but also for all the girls and women who don't deserve to be assaulted out there. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Here to discuss CNN's chief legal analyst and former federal prosecutor, Laura Coates. Also joining us, Renato Mariotti, also a former federal prosecutor. Um, Renato, quick verdict by the jury. Quick verdict, even surprising Donald Trump's attorney, Mr. Tacopina. What would you make of that? Well, it certainly suggests that the jury found the evidence very compelling. And I really think Trump and his team are to blame for that. I mean, they did not put up a defense. He did not testify He was not even present for the trial. Uh, So really, I think they made this job very easy for the jury. And so I'm not surprised that the jury reached the verdict that it did. Laura, does it undermine Mr. Takapina's attempt to try to get Donald Trump an appeal, the fact that they really didn't stage much of a defense? Well, you know, in the civil world, he's not required to actually testify or appear. And that seems very counterintuitive to anyone who would be accused of something as significant as sexual assault. 
in this category, but he's not required to do so. So his absence is not going to be the reason he will say, hey, the jury did not give my client a fair shot. That was his choice to do so. The, the more fertile grounds to actually appeal would be on the area of testimony that was allowed to be heard by the jury. They heard this category of sort of pro, a prior bad act evidence. If you remember from the Cosby trial, obviously different circumstances, and that was the criminal context, there was a lot about how and who could actually testify about things that were alleged to have happened that were not charged outside of the context of these specific allegations. There was more than one person who was allowed to testify, as you just interviewed as well, about this very notion. So the idea of whether that was unduly prejudicial is going to be the real crux of an appeal in this matter. He's already alluded to possibly looking at the jury pool somehow being tainted. If there is some basis under the voir dire principles to suggest that they did not have an unbiased jury or had reason to believe people were biased and chose them nonetheless, that would be the ripe ground. But the other than that, not much to stand on. So, Renato, I think it's fair to say uh, that E. Jean Carroll's, um, her case was not a slam dunk. Uh, there, you know, she couldn't, she didn't know the year it took place. Uh, there are other questions, uh, that Mr. Tacopina was able to bring up. I think, um, Donald Trump made E. Jean Carroll's case easier with his testimony. And I want to run a, a piece of his video deposition when he's asked about the Access Hollywood tape from 2006, uh, in which he infamously claimed that, that people like him, stars could grab women by their genitals because they're so famous. Here's, here's part of that deposition. I won't get your reaction to on the other end. In this video, I just start kissing them. It's like a magnet. Just kiss. I don't even wait. And when you're a star, they let you do it. You can do anything. Grab them by the pussy. You can do anything. That's what you said, correct? Well, historically, that's true with stars. It's true with stars that, that they can grab women by the pussy? Well, that's what... It's, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been... Largely true, not always, but largely true. Unfortunately or fortunately. And you consider yourself uh, to be a star? I think you can say that, yeah. So just to underline this, he's, he, he says that stars like him, I'm paraphrasing obviously, stars like him can get away with sexually, assault women, sexually assaulting women, unfortunately or fortunately. Quote, Unfortunately or fortunately, uh, that must have just been a gift to the to E. Jean Carroll's case, um, don't, don't you think, Renata? Yeah, I, absolutely. And there's, it's absolutely indefensible, right? So, you know, if he had a if that deposition was full of him talking about how tortured he felt that someone would dare would accuse him of this because he would never do anything of that sort, and he just can't imagine that. It would have been one thing, right? That's what you would expect uh, somebody, a normal person, to react to something like that. Uh, but somebody uh, like Donald Trump, frankly, I think he revealed something to the jury, which is he's not bothered by this concept. He not only, you know, is saying, "Look, this is the, you know the Access Hollywood tape is something I said long ago, and I didn't really believe, and I feel horrible I said it." He, he basically was defending it, saying it's absolutely true, and he's. I don't know how you could say it's anything's fortunate about sexual assault. It's a violent crime, and it's it's disgusting. And frankly, the jury, as like I said, he made the jury's job very easy. Renato Mariotti and Laura Coates, thanks to both of you. Much more on this major verdict, the jury finding Donald Trump liable for sexually abusing Eugene Carroll. What this case could mean for Trump's 2024 presidential campaign. That's next. 
Donald Trump reacting again to the verdict this afternoon that found him liable for sexual abuse. He reacted on his Truth social media account, posting in all caps, very unfair trial, exclamation point. Let's bring in CNN political commentators, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, Scott Jennings, and Ashley uh, Allison. Alyssa, uh, you served as Donald Trump's communications director uh, at at the White House. Um, Do you think a jury finding him liable for sexual abuse uh, will have any impact on whether or not he becomes the presidential nominee for the Republican Party? Well, I guess the answer is it should. Um, Now, this is one of the many firsts in history that Donald Trump has managed to achieve um, a new low. I think, you know, back in 2016, there were a number of us, myself included, women who were concerned about, you know, allegations against him, comments that he has made. But this is now something that a court, a jury, I should say, of his peers found him guilty of. They said that, yes, he committed sexual abuse and defamation. We cannot afford to put this man up, us Republicans, if we actually want to win because women will run from voting for him. Keep in mind that one in three women will be a victim of sexual assault in their lifetime. Those are not people who are going to vote for somebody who's now been credibly, credibly found to have been guilty of doing this to this poor woman. Scott Jennings, do you agree? Uh, well, I think it's, um, I've had a lot of analysis thoughts here. Number one, I mean, nothing we heard in this trial is really revelatory. I mean, a, a lot of things we found out about Donald Trump, we already knew. And Republicans nominated him twice. And, you know, he's a front runner for a third time. That's number one. Number two, uh, I think a lot of Republicans will rationalize this by saying, well, it happened in New York and you can find a jury in New York to, to you know, to find Donald Trump guilty of anything. Um, uh, and number three, a lot of Republicans are going to say, oh, we're now taking mid 90s sexual accusations seriously in our politics. Oh, we, so that that's what you're going to hear out of the people who support him. I think this gets thrown in the bag with the Bragg indictment, this, whatever happens in Georgia, January 6th, the documents. And by the time we start voting, that bag's going to feel pretty heavy to a lot of Republicans. And as Alyssa said, a lot of Republican women, uh, I assume will agree. And Ashley, um, Obviously, as both uh, uh, Alyssa and Scott have alluded to, um, Eugene Carroll is hardly the first woman to publicly accuse Donald Trump of sexually assaulting her. Uh, in fact, we know of at least 12 other women who have accused him of sexual harassment or sexual assault or sexual misconduct. We heard, we heard from one of them uh, earlier in the hour, Natasha Stoinoff, who, who testified uh, in the Eugene uh, Carroll case. Um, it doesn't seem to have an impact uh, significant, significantly enough to not make him competitive. Well, first, I think that this is important for sexual assault survivors to see that no one is above the law and that if you sexually assault someone, even if you are the former president of the United States, you can be held liable. So I think that's the first point. I do think, though, the the tapes, the Access Hollywood tapes that played in 2016 were very damning. And yet some people said, oh, that was just locker room talk. Well, now in a deposition, we have Donald Trump saying, uh, no, that's actually the way it is. I do think I'm larger than life and I'm above the law. And I think many women voters and honestly male voters um, who supported him in 2016, who then came over to Joe Biden in 2020, will stay on the Democratic side if he is the Republican nominee. But also those folks who might not have been engaged will say, I I don't want someone like this representing my country and be more engaged. The final point I would say to Scott's uh, comment about uh, the 90s is like, we have a whole new electorate right now. I couldn't even vote then. Um, And so the way 
way we view sexual assault and and the importance of holding people accountable, I think will play. So young people, um, women, and people who believe survivors will play a factor in this 2024 race. We still have a long ways to go. It might not prevent him from being the Republican nominee, but I think it could stop him from being the next president again. Uh, Alyssa, uh, what was your reaction uh, having having worked uh, for Donald Trump in the White House, um, where people were still saying things along the lines of that you know about the Access Hollywood tape? That's just locker room talk. Um, although I, I will say, having been in plenty of locker rooms, I've never heard of anyone bragging about committing sexual assault. Um, when he, Donald Trump, uh, in the video deposition that was in this trial, basically said that it wasn't locker room talk. He basically said, yeah, this is how it is. It's been like this for a million years, and stars like me can get away with it. And then he said, um, unfortunately or fortunately, what was your reaction to that, or fortunately? Listen, when Donald Trump tells you who he is, believe him. Um, I mean, that is, this is, it, we wanted to chalk it up to locker room talk in 2016. It was not locker room talk. Now he is credibly, he has been, he's now been charged with, or I should say held liable in this case, for actually committing sexual assault. Like, I cannot underscore that enough. Uh, that your guest before made an incredibly important point. Any man or woman who was falsely accused would be the first person to show up and to defend themselves in a rape allegation or a sexual assault allegation. He couldn't be bothered to show up. I have countless cases of what I considered impropriety in the White House that I brought to the chief of staff because I thought the way he engaged with women was dangerous. This is, I mean, we know these facts, the patterns have laid out, and now this is something that's not just speculation, it's not just allegations, it is a jury of his peers deciding that he did this. Wait, you brought to Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, uh, or other chiefs of staff, incidents that you witnessed of Donald Trump behaving inappropriately with women? I did, as well as uh, former White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham and others, um, Nothing that rises to this level, but things that I would consider improper and that I had a duty to report. And this is all out there. Voters need to pay attention and folks in my own party need to stop making apologies for this man. Is there anything more you can tell us about this? I, I, if I'm able to, I will share more. All right. You have to come on this show to tell it, though. Alyssa Farrah Griffin, Scott Jennings, Ashley Anderson. Don't let me see you showing up in prime time with these stories. <laughs> I got you so much. All right. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. This verdict comes just one day before the CNN exclusive town hall. Donald Trump is going to take questions from CNN's Caitlin Collins and New Hampshire Republican primary voters. That's tomorrow night at 8 Eastern, only here on CNN. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy just came out of the White House after meeting with President Biden and congressional leaders, other congressional leaders. There's Mitch McConnell, and there were some Democrats there as well, Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries. Is there going to be a deal on the debt ceiling, or are we going to go into economic freefall? We're going to hear from Speaker McCarthy on the other side of the break. Stay with us. This is CNN Breaking News. And we're back with breaking news, different breaking news. A CNN exclusive, Republican Congressman George Santos of New York is now facing criminal charges. Sources telling CNN's Evan Perez that federal prosecutors have filed charges against the New York freshman and serial liar. He's expected to appear in court as soon as tomorrow. Let's bring in Evan Perez, who's breaking the story for us. Evan, tell us more. What do we know about the charges specifically? 
Well, Jake, right now we do not know the exact nature of these charges. We know that these have been filed under seal uh, it, with the uh, federal court in the Eastern District of New York. That's, of course, the court that has jurisdiction over uh, Representative Santos's district, which is in uh, Queens and Long Island. Uh, we know that uh, at this point he's expected to appear in federal court to answer these charges uh, in ISLIP tomorrow. Uh, that's as soon as tomorrow uh, in, in, uh, in Eastern District of New York. Now, um, again, we don't know the charges. We know that the Justice Department, public integrity prosecutors, the FBI, uh, of course, prosecutors there in, uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Brooklyn have been investigating the, the, con the congressman for a number of allegations, including uh, charges or, or claims, rather, that he falsified some of his campaign finance filings. And so those uh, are among the things that we expect uh, prosecutors uh, may be able to shed some more light on uh, when we see these charges finally announced tomorrow. Now, uh, this is a congressman, obviously, Jake, that you've talked about many, many times on this program. Uh, he took office just in January. And in just uh, just a few months, of course, uh, it's come to light a number, just a, a stunning number of falsehoods and, and lies that he's told as part of his campaign and the lead up to his campaign and in the years for, uh, prior. I'll just recite just a few of them, including uh, his claim on his resume that he worked at uh, Goldman Sachs and Citibank. Uh, he said that he played, uh, he was a star volleyball player uh, for Baruch College, which, where he said he got a degree. None of those things uh, were true. He claimed, obviously, that uh, also that he had Jewish heritage, something, again, that has been uh, shown to be false. And, you know, the, the congressman has repeatedly said that he is not a criminal, that uh, he's not b been charged with anything. Uh, we do know, though, in recent weeks that he did admit uh, to a fraud charge in Brazil some number of years ago. Jake? Yeah, Leslie Jones once said uh, on The Daily Show, do you know how much you have to lie to be known as the lying congressman, uh, which says something. But, of course, lying to the public is not necessarily against the law. Uh, some of the uh, allegations you're talking about, obviously, are including uh, campaign finance violations, potentially, uh, allegedly, and, and uh, fraud, stealing from that veteran who had the sick dog. Has Santos or his legal team, if one exists, responded to your reporting? Uh, we reached out to uh, George Santos's uh, lawyer this afternoon. Uh, he declined to comment, said that he's not going to comment on any of these allegations until, until he sees fit. Uh, we did see uh, our Capitol Hill team, Manu Raju and others, saw him uh, walking the halls earlier today. He did not uh, uh, tell us anything about uh, what his plans are for travel to New York tomorrow. But again, that's where we expect that he's going to be able to, to answer these charges for the first time, uh, Jake, uh, in the Eastern District of New York. Uh, let's bring in CNN's Manu Raju. Manu, Santos also under investigation on Capitol Hill before the House Ethics Committee. But, of course, that's a rather toothless organization, generally speaking. This, this seems more significant. Yeah, no question about it. And also, it'll be interesting to see how Kevin McCarthy, the speaker, responds to this, because for some time, he has not called on George Santos to resign, in large part because if Santos were to resign, this would open up a special election in a district that Joe Biden carried in 2020, something that could potentially flip to the Democrats and narrow Kevin McCarthy's already razor-thin majority, which is why McCarthy, for some time, has said, let's let the investigations play out. He has pointed to the House Ethics and 
investigation as one in which you'll ultimately decide on how to respond to George Santos, whether he would call him to resign, saying, let's see what the House Ethics Committee comes up with. We do know that the Ethics Committee is pressing ahead with this investigation. How long that they, they'll come to reach any sort of conclusion remains to be seen. But now that he uh, has been indicted, George Santos, the question will be whether that changes the leadership calculation at all, whether Kevin McCarthy will come out and call for George Santos to resign. There are rules within the House Republican Conference that if for any member who has been indicted, they automatically lose their committee assignments. Recall, though, earlier this year, Santos ultimately voluntarily stepped down from his committee assignments after discussions with McCarthy. So whether there will be any other punitive measures remain to be seen. Also uncertain whether Santos will try to fight this in court, whether he will try to run for re-election. He did announce just a few weeks ago he planned to run for re-election despite the mounting opposition from Republican leaders back home and also many within his own conference still said that he would try to fight and try to win this electorally. Will that change his mindset now that he has been indicted? All big questions, but also a big question for the Speaker. What will he do about this controversial member who has now been indicted within his conference, something that can narrow his majority if he were to step aside? All big things that will certainly be on the Speaker's mind and Santos's mind in the days ahead, Jay. Well, I think you answered your question in, in it, but I, I hear what you're saying. Let's bring in uh, former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. Ellie, how serious of a, a legal case uh, could this be? Well, Jake, I guess that'll be the big thing that we find out tomorrow when we take a look at this indictment. Important to understand, it is not a crime to lie to the public. It is not a crime to lie about what you're going to do when you get in office. It's not a crime to lie about your background. What is a crime, however, and what might be the case here, we don't know, is to lie in your Federal Election Commission filings, to lie about your campaign expenditures. And you'll recall there was reporting that George Santos's campaign claimed this whole series of expenditures for $199 because the limit over which you have to detail those expenditures is $200. I think that was awfully suspicious. So I'd be looking for some sort of official false statements charge here. Again, we're speculating, but based on what the public reporting is. CNN uh, Chief Legal Analyst Laura Coates is also joining us again. Uh, Laura, sorry, I thought you uh, were going to get the hour off after all of our Trump conversation, but now we have an, <laughs> another legal matter dealing with a, a different, nope. a different uh, lying uh, New York politician. How is this going to uh, play uh, out in court um, when Santos appears as soon as tomorrow? Obviously, we don't have the charges, but walk us through the choreography, if you would. Well, first, we're going to know more about the actual charges, if it's sealed, of course, if it's what they're going to actually release to the public and what a judge would know about an arraignment and whether this is going to be a multiple indictment or one or more. Remember, you can oftentimes amend an indictment to include more offenses later on. There might be conversations already about the grand jury testimony that came in, if there was a grand jury impaneled in this particular matter. And we're going to learn more about this, frankly, likely as George Santos does. But as Ellie articulated, the nature of the charges, the, the, the number of the charges might not be known, but certainly the substance of what we know to be the underlying cause for the investigation is, has been quite clear. And if you follow the trail of money, the idea of thinking about whether transparency and accountability can be actually served for the electorate. That's going to be the key for any 
campaign finance or election related matter. What was known? What was relayed to the public? And did the electorate have a meaningful opportunity to elect a candidate of their choosing based on verifiable, truthful information? We take election related matters very seriously in this country because we want to have that level of transparency and accountability and the access to having someone you want in office. And remember, Speaker McCarthy was very reluctant to say what they would do about this seat, trying to kick the can down the road to suggest that if there was a crime that occurred, then they would take action. Well, if the domino begins to fall and the charges come in criminally, the question I have is how will this actually manifest politically? And for the questions and reasons that Evan said, the idea of having an open seat in this instance when you had the potential for a Democrat to come in and claim it is going to be quite odd in this new Congress. Uh, and Ali Honig, uh, I think I know the answer to this, but but can Santos serve in Congress as this legal case uh, proceeds? And c- can he serve in Congress if he's convicted? He can, Jake. The only way to get rid of a member of the U.S. Congress, the House or the Senate, is by expulsion. Now, the Constitution tells us that that requires a two-thirds vote of that body. So you would have to see Republicans join with Democrats to do that. There have only been five members of the U.S. House ever expelled in the history of this country. Three of them were Confederates, former Confederates, shortly after the Civil War. Uh, The fourth was somebody from Pennsylvania, from outside of the the Philly area, who was expelled in the 70s or the 80s. And the fifth was a a congressman named James Traficant, who had been convicted of a crime. So there's going to be a big question here for Kevin McCarthy and other Republicans, which is, now that we have reporting, and we'll see tomorrow that George Santos has been indicted, are you willing to allow him to keep on serving. Who was who the one from uh, the Philly area? Was that, was that Ozzie Myers? Michael Myers, Michael I think Myers. was the name. Ozzie Myers, yes. Yeah, that was my congressman, man. I know who that. That's, that's, that's <laughs> in Philly. That's not outside Philly. That's in Philly. We, we're, we're, we're proud of our boy. He's, he's, he's in prison again for a different offense, by the way. Uh, Evan, uh, we're right. told these charges were, were filed under seal, so we don't know exactly what they are. Right. Can you walk us through some of the laws? As we noted, it's... It's obviously not illegal for politicians to lie to the public, lie to the uh, lie to each other, uh, lie to the media. But but Santos has been accused of breaking laws. What are some of them? Well, you know, the biggest one here uh, and the most problematic one for the congressman is that every time he filed something false, if if it indeed is uh, these uh, entries uh, that were claimed for one hundred and ninety nine dollars because it was right under the limit, uh, of what should be detailed for his campaign expenses, for his campaign expenditures, all of those are, are federal crimes, Jake. And so you're looking at the possibility he could be facing a number of charges just related to the, to the paperwork that he's filed there. And, um, you know, the way this works is, you know, the, the congressman uh, and his legal team would be told by the FBI, by the uh, Justice Department, uh, here you've been indicted and here's your choice. Uh, you could either turn yourself in to the FBI. He was here in Washington today. He could turn himself in here and, you know, be, be transported by the FBI, by the U.S. Marshals to New York. I mean, you've heard of, uh, of Con Air, right? Uh, well, it often in times uh, involves a bus. You take a slow bus to New York or 
you could fly yourself to New York and turn yourself in uh, at the federal court there. And so we expect, uh, if uh, passed as prologue, that the congressman will avail himself of that chance to turn himself in in New York. And so that's when uh, we expect to see publicly all of the different charges that he's facing. As, as I think, you know, Ellie and, and Laura have pointed out, you know, the, the fact remains that a lot of what uh, has made the biggest, splashiest headlines are likely not federal crimes, right? Some of the things about his, his resume uh, padding, uh, Baruch College star volleyball player, uh, the fact that he claimed that he was a producer on Spider-Man, uh, things like that, which have made a lot of us laugh, are likely not uh, federal crimes that they can bring. But you know, the fact that some of these campaign filings, uh, which he has amended, by the way, uh, indicate that there are problems there. He knows that there are problems there. And that's where the FBI, that's where the public integrity prosecutors have plenty to work with to, to bring charges. A big day for uh, law and order and consequences uh, in uh, New York. I feel like Logan and Briscoe are going to show up any second. And gonna, well, I want to sign you guys out with the doink doink, but uh, I can't. But thank you, of all of us, for all of you for being here. We're following several major stories this afternoon. Uh, there are the federal charges against Republican Congressman George Santos. Then there's the verdict finding Donald Trump liable uh, of sexual abuse and defamation. There is also here in Washington a major showdown at the White House. Speaker McCarthy made remarks after meeting with President Biden and his fellow congressional leaders. We're going to go to the White House next. Stay with us. Moments ago, a critical meeting ended at the White House. President Biden hosted the top Republicans and Democrats in Congress as they are all trying to avert an economic catastrophe. We hope they're trying. Let's bring in CNN's Jeremy Diamond at the White House and CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. So, Jeremy, we just heard from Speaker Kevin McCarthy, uh, the Republican, and uh, Senate Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, the Republican in the Senate. What was their takeaway from the meeting? Well, Jake, heading into this meeting, White House officials told me that the president was defiant in holding the line that he was demanding a clean debt ceiling increase. And clearly, that's exactly what happened. The president maintained his line. The speaker maintained his line. And according to the Speaker of the House, everyone simply reiterated their positions. Listen. The House has raised the debt ceiling and passed the bill. That's why we had a meeting today. Everybody in this meeting reiterated the positions they were at. I didn't see any new movement. The president said the staff should get back together. But I was very clear with the president. We have now just two weeks to go. And after uh, those remarks, the speaker continued to plead his case that he believes the president should engage in good faith negotiations about spending. The president, for his part, he has said he's willing to have those conversations, but simply not with uh, the question of default uh, being used as a bargaining chip here. Now, we also heard from the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who said that the president explicitly asked uh, the Speaker of the House to take a default off the table. Senator Schumer said that the speaker uh, would not do so, continuing to reiterate his, his belief that spending should be negotiated at the same time. Now, where do we go from here? The only thing that seems to have emerged is that there's an agreement at least to keep talking. Staff from both sides are going to continue to have discussions. And then the four congressional leaders, I'm told, are expected to return to the White House on Friday to meet once again with the president. And Manu, uh, Speaker McCarthy says there's going to be another meeting with President Biden on Friday. But, you know, we can't ignore the timeline here. We've got about three weeks to go. The House isn't even in session for all of the next three weeks. 
Yeah, and it will take time to get any sort of deal that could be cut, get that drafted into legislative text, go through the process, sell members on this, and try to push it through the House. That takes some time, and even takes longer to get it through the United States Senate. So getting this all done by June 1st, which could potentially be the date of the first ever debt default, something that could have drastic economic consequences, that is really in question here. The Speaker did tell a group of reporters earlier today, he told us that he believes that any deal in principle needs to be reached by next week in order to meet that very tight time frame. So the question is, what exactly are the what's going to happen between now and Fridays? As, as Jeremy noted, the, that's when the principals will meet. The big, the four congressional leaders will meet again at the White House on Friday. But staff level discussions will happen between now and then. Will they start to discuss any sort of framework, any sort of outline of what could be agreed to as part of a debt limit increase? But hearing what the leader said out of that meeting, it is going to be a very high bar to clear in order to avert default, in order to get an agreement as both sides reiterated their positions at this meeting. So what ultimately will come of this is still a major question. But Jake, this is really the only game in town. There are no other discussions happening on Capitol Hill to avert a debt default. It has to happen among the leaders, and McCarthy and Biden in particular. And right now, there is a long way to go to avert that default, Jake. Yeah, no other... No other conversations happening, although we should know. We've known this was coming for months, if not years. Um, Jeremy, quick action by you, because uh, as Evan Perez was breaking that story about the federal charges against Congressman George Santos, uh, you were able to ask uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, about it. Uh, What did he have to say? Yeah, Jake, this story was breaking as the speaker uh, was talking, so he certainly had not yet seen the news. But what he said was, I will look at the charges. I asked him specifically whether or not he believes Congressman Santos should be removed from office, and that was the only response that he offered. The speaker has previously said that if it is found that Congressman Santos violated the law, that he believes uh, that he should be removed from office. I, uh, the, the speaker was also asked uh, for a reaction to this uh, Trump uh, uh, defamation and uh, a battery uh, lawsuit in which the president was found liable for sexual uh, abuse. And the speaker said, let me find out what happened. On that point, though, Jake, that news broke before the speaker went into this meeting with the White House. Clearly, he did not want to offer his full take on that yet. Manu, um, how do you think Republicans on Capitol Hill are going to react to the news? And we should probably delineate there are New York Republicans uh, like Congressman Lawler and others who have attacked him and said he should resign. And then there's the, the large body of the House Republicans that really have been pretty mum about Mr. Santos. Yeah, and they want him to go away, even though they're not saying it publicly. And the question will be how McCarthy will deal with this. In order to move, remove Santos from office, he either has to resign or the House needs to expel him. That requires a two-thirds majority in the U.S. House in order to do that. That means there needs to be support from the Speaker, from the other leaders, from most of the Republican conference in order to do that. And that will require Republican leadership support to get there. So if Santos comes out and denies the charges, pleads not guilty, and says he's going to fight it in court, Does McCarthy side with Santos or does he decide to push him out? But as I mentioned, that could create electoral problems for him. He's tried to avoid any sort of special election with a vacancy in that swing district that favors Democrats, which is why for so long he has essentially said, let this investigation play out. But now that charges are being filed, a different dynamic here in the House. Republican leaders are yet to decide how to deal with that. Jeremy Diamond, Manu Raju, both ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. Thanks so much. Aside from all these major developments, developments in the political world. We are also following a stunning development in Utah, a bizarre story, a horrible story. A woman whose husband died 
wrote a book about dealing with grief, a children's book. She has now been charged with having murdered her husband. Details next. A bizarre story in our national lead now. A a Utah woman who wrote a children's book about grief after her husband died last year is now being charged with his murder. Corey Richens is accused of having poisoned her husband, Eric Richens, with a deadly dose of fentanyl. The 33-year-old author faces several felony charges, including aggravated murder. CNN's Nick Watt is following this horrific story that's taken such a dark turn. Uh, Nick, tell us more. Well, Jake, from the court documents, here is what we are learning. The medical examiner says that they found five times the lethal dose of fentanyl in Eric Richens after he died. And that fentanyl was, they say, orally ingested. We also know that his wife, Corey Richens, made him a drink the night before, served it to him in bed at about 9 p.m. It was a Moscow mule cocktail. Now, that all happened last March, March 2022. This March, Corey Richens was out promoting her book that she says she wrote with her three young kids, a book she dedicated to that husband, to that father, who she is now accused of murdering. Um, so, So she basically wrote this book about grief, and now she is being accused of inflicting that grief on her children. Now, what seems to have been key in this investigation were phone records. Authorities say that they found on Corey Richens' phone contacts with a known drug dealer. Three separate deals. Apparently, just uh, in early February, she got a second dose of drugs, having asked for, quote, the Michael Jackson stuff, asked for stronger drugs. She then got another dose of fentanyl, and it was just a few days after getting that second dose of fentanyl, according to authorities, from this dealer that her husband, Eric, was found dead of a fentanyl overdose. Um, Obviously, three kids are involved. We don't know what is happening with them, but we know that she, Corey Richens, is behind bars right now. Jake? So I just went on to Amazon and looked for Corey Richens' book. It's called Are You With Me? I don't think I can find it on Amazon here. No, I looked first thing this morning, Jake, and it was on Amazon. I checked a little while later and it was no longer there. Um, She is going to be appearing in court again in a few weeks. We will see where this goes. But the authorities seem very, very confident with the evidence that they have, the phone records, uh, the toxicology that she indeed killed her husband. It was extraordinary to see her on local TV promoting this book, talking about how she and her children have managed to get through the loss of this great uh, uh, husband, this great father. And then just weeks later to see her behind bars charged with his murder. An extraordinary story, and we will be keeping on top of it. Yeah, and, and just for the record, I wasn't going to buy it on Amazon. I just wanted to see, I wanted to see yeah. if it was available. What a horrible story, those poor kids. Yeah. Nick Watt, thank you so much. Appreciate yeah. it. The major stories this evening, a jury finding Donald Trump liable of sexually assaulting and defaming E. Jean Carroll, the Justice Department charging Republican Congressman George Santos, the White House meeting about the showdown over the debt ceiling. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow.
We all do things our own way, and since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.